This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. What a great interview we've had today. Ken Terry is the author of a couple of books on healthcare policy and practice. He's been writing about healthcare for more than 25 years as a senior editor for medical economics. He's covered everything from medical practice business and especially focused on managed care and health IT. He's even received several journalism awards, including the Neil Award from American Business Media and has contributed to many freelance articles across numerous publications. Well, Daniel, I was really excited to have Ken on. I just read insatiably on value-based care, and his book is one of the best. The perfect confluence of health policy and value-based care, and he has such great contributors to the book. Dr. David Nash from Jefferson College of Population Health wrote the foreword. He also has as contributors the likes of Farzad Mastashari, David Blumenthal, Donald Berwick, Paul Grundy. The list goes on and on and on and on. If any any Anybody out there that's listening to this podcast and you, you, you want a book that really highlights the best of the best across the entire country when it comes to value-based care with recommendations on how we can change our country by taking those bright spots and creating policy, this is definitely the book for you. So we'll go ahead and hand it over to Ken Terry today in this Race to Value. Hello, Ken. Welcome to the Race to Value podcast. We're so happy to have you with us today. Well, thanks for inviting me to be on your podcast. You know, Ken, I have to say, I read your new book, and I think it is the best out there on health policy and value-based care. It is such a well-researched book, and it's my favorite of the year. So we're so excited to have you on to discuss it. So I thought a great place to start would be to talk about this race to value that we're in as a country. And allow me to walk through for our listeners the progression over the last decade. Let's start with the passage of ACA 10 years ago. It set in motion various value initiatives like the hospital value-based purchasing program, BPCI, mandatory bundle payments, like the CCJR program, comprehensive primary care initiative, and of course, the MSSP. So all that is happening with ACA. And then in 2015, HHS Secretary Sylvia Burwell sends a shockwave to the industry by saying that 85% of all payments in the traditional Medicare program would be tied to quality or value, and 90% would be value-based by the end of 2018. And the government also planned to tie 30% of Medicare payments to APMs by 2017, and then hopefully reaching 50% mark by 18. And then after that, you have the election of Donald Trump as president. And in his administration, cuts in half the number of areas where bundled payments for joint replacement were going to be mandatory. And then During the time from 2013 to 2019, the MSSP is slowly starting to demonstrate success. And after losing, I think it's around $387 million in its first four years, it begins saving. And then in the last three years, from 2017 to 2019, we have over $2 billion in overall cost savings. So upon passage of the ACA, many thought 
that value-based care is just a flash in the pan. And that sentiment clearly has resided over the years. And in your book, you you make reference to our good friend at Levitt Partners, David Muelstein. There's a quote that in your book I really liked that came from David. You know, if you're capitated for 5% of your revenue, you still have 95% of your revenue in fee-for-service, and that's where you're going to focus your business. So in his view, the ACA has done little to control costs, and it's not really going to solve the cost growth crisis in America. And in your book, you state that the odds of rescuing our failing healthcare system are poor, regardless of whether we try to build on ACA or move to Medicare for all. So my question, I want to ask you, this disease of the healthcare system that we have that's preventing us from reaching the true aims of health value, it seems that it's multifactorial in that there are a number of root causes. Can you provide our listeners with your perspective on what some of the major challenges are in keeping us away from the finish line when it comes to this race to value? The first thing is that you have to look at, at how the healthcare system is structured. You know, aside from the fact that we have been dominated by fee-for-service for so long, the system has also steadily grown more consolidated with hospitals joining together into large healthcare systems and those healthcare systems combining into even bigger entities. And then in many markets, employing the majority of doctors. In fact, I think a slight majority of doctors across the country now work for hospitals in one way or another. And, you know, what, what that's really done is it has driven up costs because the hospital systems use their market leverage to get higher payments from private payers. I mean, and to some extent, this is designed to cost shift because they're, they're not getting paid nearly as much by Medicare or Medicaid. But it also simply adds an additional layer of cost that is in, in many cases, based on very high and unjustifiable administrative overhead and high executive salaries. So that, that, that's one area that is preventing us you know, from moving toward value. And I think that I make the, the case in my book that in the uh, MSSP, the ACOs that are part of hospital systems or run by hospital systems are not doing as well. They're not saving as much money as those being led by physicians because they have different incentives. So that, that's one part of it. Another part is that, and, and we saw this you know, really starting to play out back in the 1990s in the first wave of managed care. Outside of uh, Kaiser Permanente and uh, some of the other group model HMOs and, and very large uh, group practices in the United States, there was very little appetite to take any kind of financial risk. You know, in fact, in many cases, when groups did try to take financial risk without the proper infrastructure or if they were too small, they lost their shirts back then. And I, I think that the mindset and the culture of American physicians is still very much set against taking risk, which is a large part of the reason why only a small portion of the MSSP ASOs took risk until fairly recently. Now, I think that some of the more recent policy moves by, by Medicare has increased uh, that percentage, but it's still probably only about a third of ACOs that, that take Medicare or commercial risk. And, and as you mentioned, if you look at the entire amount of revenue that these uh, practices are receiving, the average group is still taking only a small percentage you know, in, in single digits of their, their revenue with any financial risk. So, you know, when we talk about value-based reimbursement, and this was the big push in the uh, Obama administration, you're really talking in many cases about various kinds of pay for performance, to some extent, bundled payments, which were, were mandated. Uh, and as you said, you know, that mandate was greatly whittled down in the Trump administration. But we really haven't seen the kind of value-based incentives that would get physicians to change their attitude toward risk and, and really begin to try to uh, bend the cost curve. Those are a couple of the reasons. And I, I do think that there's a whole other dimension, which I get into in chapter 12 of my book about, you know, the need to do technology assessment and how, you know, new technology and biologic drugs and so forth keep on, on pushing up costs. 
And so even if we could greatly reduce the waste in the healthcare system, costs would continue to rise at, at a rate faster than GDP or, or wages, unless we can get, a, get some hold on uh, medical technology. Well, Ken, I'd, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about primary care. And in your book, there was something that resonated with me. Um, you discuss how many other countries' healthcare systems outperform ours for one simple reason. They place a much greater emphasis on primary care, which occupies the central place in their systems. And you make reference to our good friend, Dr. David Nash, the founding dean of College of Population Health at Thomas Jefferson University. And there's a quote that you attribute to him that, quote unquote, the evidence shows that when you have more primary care physicians, where you coordinate care and where you pay to keep people healthy, you, ha- you get better outcomes at lower cost. And I think about my own experience, Ken, I, I went to Cuba several years ago as part of a healthcare research delegation. And that really informed my thinking about where we need to go in our country for primary care. There, you know, 80% of the physicians are primary care and 20% are specialists. And here it's almost the flip of that. So there's so much evidence in your book that points to how primary care delivers value to the system. For example, you make reference to research by Barbara Starfield and her colleagues at Johns Hopkins University showing that a higher ratio of primary care physicians to the population is associated with lower mortality rate for all causes and from heart disease and cancer. And another study you you make reference to uses Medicare data, and it shows that states where you have a higher percentage of physicians who are primary care physicians, you add higher quality of care and lower cost per beneficiary. In general, you really make a compelling case for how primary care is oriented towards keeping people healthy and how by being upstream from the more costly specialized care that may be required when people you know, get really ill, it's really a key solution for reform. And one other thing I wanted to mention, you know, just a couple of months ago, you wrote this synopsis on the, the healthcare blog about you know, this chapter in your book called the, you know, why primary care should run the healthcare system. And I posted that on my LinkedIn and I, and it absolutely went viral. I think it had more views than anything I've ever posted. So there's a lot of interest in that. And I wanted you to explore that with our listeners today. It seems like U.S. primary care is in really poor shape, but there's amazing opportunities for it to climb out of its slump. You know, how would you recommend that our country better position primary care so that it is in the driver's seat where we can evolve from a sick care system to a true health system. All right. Well, if you look at some of the ills affecting primary care right now, you can see that uh, there's no easy solution. The percentage of uh, primary care doctors in the overall physician population is declining. Fewer young doctors are going into it, as few as 20% actually now. And, you know, that, that's partly because nature of medical education in this country burdens uh, young doctors with a lot of debt, and uh, they can make a lot more money if they choose a, a specialty other than primary care. And in addition, I think that the physician culture has also degraded the image of, of primary care doctors. In some areas, particularly in the Northeast, primary care physicians are expected to refer out you know, any patient who has more than uh, you know, a simple medical problem, which doesn't really make any sense given the amount of education the primary care doctors have. At the same time, you've got mid-level practitioners, uh, such as nurse practitioners and physician assistants, who are uh, you know, providing a lot of basic primary care. In, in, in some places, uh, some states, they're allowed to uh, practice independently. And, you know, certainly they have filled in a lot of the gaps in primary care as, you know, the number of primary care doctors has declined. But still, their education is, is somewhat limited. And if they're presented with a case that, that you know, goes beyond those limitations, uh, they're not going to be able to deal with it or they're going to have to refer it right out. So I think we do need more primary care doctors. And then you've got the, you know, the, uh, the retail clinics and the urgent care centers also competing with primary care doctors. So in order to turn the ship around, it, it really requires us to restructure healthcare delivery. And this is the, uh, the core of my book, as you know. I believe uh, that the best way to reduce costs and improve outcomes in, in healthcare is to have uh, primary care doctors join groups large enough to take financial risk and to compete with one another in local areas for patients. 
And before we get to that point, we would have to do a couple of, of major changes in the system that, as I see it, uh, should accompany the, tr the transition to Medicare for all over perhaps a 10 year period. First of all, Congress would have to pass a law similar to the all payer law in Maryland, uh, except that it would only affect private payers. And hospitals would, would be paid the same negotiated rates by all private payers. And they wouldn't be able to use their size or their, their market power to get higher rates. Secondly, Congress would have to pass a, a national corporate practice of medicine law that would be stricter than the one in California so that no non-physician entity could employ doctors uh, directly or indirectly. That would be a really major change. But the result of that would be that hospitals would have to divest their physician practices. And when you had primary care doctors able to form their own practices, you would have the, the basic building block that you would need in order to create the larger primary care groups that I'm talking about. Now, the government wouldn't compel doctors to join these larger groups or to form them, but under Medicare for All, doctors would be paid at Medicare rates unless they joined one of these groups if they were primary care doctors and took financial risk. In that case, they would have the ability to earn more money through uh, shared savings bonuses so that they could be making as much or more than they are today. The specialists could form whatever groups they wanted to as long as they weren't too big in any given market. They would continue to be paid fee-for-service, but they also would be paid at Medicare rates unless they cooperated with the primary care groups to create value-based care, which I define as the best possible quality at the lowest possible cost. And the primary care groups would try to choose high value specialists and uh, would be required by, uh, by law to share some of their shared savings with the specialists. So, you know, again, those specialists who were the best stewards of healthcare resources could earn at least as much money as they're making now. So I, I think that by doing that, and, and basically by placing primary care doctors in charge of the healthcare system, we would greatly bolster primary care. First of all, there would be more young doctors who would want to go into it. And secondly, we would have all of the, uh, the virtues of primary care that you mentioned earlier, but in, in the context of a medical neighborhood that would be responsive to primary care initiatives to improve quality and reduce cost. That's something that you don't have today, for example, with patient-centered medical homes. Some of them are pretty effective, you know, in their own right in, in terms of, you know, what they can do within their practices. But when it comes to getting other parts of the system, like specialists in hospitals and post-acute care providers to collaborate with them, that's a tough road to hoe. Essentially, the system would be a lot better off if it were run by primary care doctors. Uh, but to create that situation, we would need to restructure healthcare delivery as a whole. Ken, I'm thinking about this vision that you've just painted for us and about all the changes that would need to happen. And there's a chapter in your book that I love where you describe the systemic waste that drives up health costs without improving patient outcomes. And you cite the landmark book, Crossing the Quality Chasm, that was published by the Institute of Medicine for the purpose of raising awareness that rudimentary clinical information capabilities coupled with the poorly designed care processes lead to unnecessary duplication of services. So since 2001, when the IOM book published the book, clinical information we know has largely been digitized and health information exchange has been significantly improved. But we know that healthcare waste is still widespread. The IOM estimates suggest that 30% or more of U.S. healthcare spending is unnecessary. And that's just a huge number. In your book, you make reference to one of my favorite pieces or, or a very well-known piece of healthcare journalism in recent history, the famous New Yorker article published in 2009 by Dr. Atul Gawande, in which he explored the overutilization of healthcare in McAllen, Texas. As the second most expensive Medicare region in the country, the cause for the high costs was determined to be attributed to practice patterns and not poor health of residents. So here we are years later, 
and healthcare costs have dropped by $3,000 per patient, largely due to the work of physician-led ACOs in the region, like our longtime friend and ACLC member, Edwin Estevez and RGV ACO, who we actually highlighted in our first podcast episode, by the way. And you reference other causes of waste in your book as well, such as lack of prevention and treatment for chronic disease and poor care coordination, the lack of standardized care pathways as well to prevent low value care. Can you speak to the main drivers of wasteful spending that you found in your research and what you learned? As far as solutions go, risk-based contracts for providers are certainly a viable policy response that we've touched on a little bit to this point. I'm really interested in learning more about your research findings on clinical practice guidelines in the Choosing Wisely recommendations. And can you provide our listeners with your perspective on whether or not these are effective ways to eliminate waste from our system? The short answer is that both clinical practice guidelines and, and choosing wisely could be tools that we could use to eliminate waste, but so far they haven't achieved their potential. And clin- clinical guidelines are very numerous and come from a lot of different specialist societies. Uh, they are of you know, varying degrees of credibility and evidence basis. The other thing is that they tend to be adopted fairly slowly when, when there's new evidence that emerges in, in medicine. And it takes a while for doctors to, number one, give credence to the new evidence, and number two, change their practice patterns. In our multi-payer insurance system, doctors are constantly being barraged with demands that they you know, meet certain quality uh, measures. And uh, they have different quality measures uh, from a number of different payers. So it's hard for them to really figure out what they should be doing, uh, especially since they really don't want to treat patients differently. They want to treat all patients the way they think is, is you know, the best way to treat them. And then you also have the problem with EHRs, which you know, tend to lead doctors into directions that they, they wouldn't necessarily go in you know, for billing purposes. And that's been a you know real obstacle, I think, to to doctors uh, in terms of following uh, guidelines. But I do think that it, it's possible, as as I showed, the Institute for Clinical Systems Integration in Minnesota has actually been pretty successful over a number of years. But essentially, by presenting doctors you know with the best evidence and and getting the groups to come together and to agree uh, on, you know, how they should be practicing medicine, they have managed to get a lot of doctors in Minnesota on board, and and there have been, you know, good results from that uh, in terms of outcomes. So I would say that a lot of this has to do with physician culture and also with putting physicians in charge. You know, if they're told they have to practice a certain way by either an insurance company or a hospital system, you know, they're probably not going to respond well and they're going to resist. And, you know, a lot of things are going to go uh, between the cracks. In terms of uh, choosing wisely, I think it was, you know, really adds that has not achieved its, its potential. And, and part of that is that some of the most lucrative types of care that certain specialists provide may be low value, but their specialist societies don't want to add those types of care to the low value list put out by choosing wisely. And then I think doctors get to a certain point where they they may know that it's not practicing a certain way is is not necessarily the best way to do it, but they're really used to doing it that way. And uh, it's hard for them to to unlearn that and to start practicing a new way. I found it very uh, revealing that that majority of doctors in, in, a, in one survey said that they saw unnecessary care being done every day. But they said that even if they were aware of choosing wisely, they hadn't necessarily changed you know, how they practice medicine. So again, there, there are a lot of different parts of this, but I think groups of doctors working together who can decide you know, as a group that they need to do things a certain way. For example, I was struck by um, at, at UPMC not that long ago. They took a look at the ways that they were performing uh, hysterectomies. 
they decided that the, um, the best way to do this at the lowest cost was to do them laparoscopically. And when the doctors were convinced that the minimally invasive surgery, you know, actually did produce the best outcomes, they got on board. And there's been a big increase in that at UPMC. And, you know, I, I should say that uh, there are certainly health systems like UPMC that are trying hard, I think, to, um, to move into value-based care and, and to try to uh, improve quality and reduce costs. I just don't think that it's, it's widespread enough across the country so that we should stick, you know, with the health system model. I think that uh, having uh, physician groups do this and not as uh, employees of a large healthcare system, but as shareholders in, in a group of their, their peers and colleagues is, is the best way to go forward with value-based care. And along with what you've been talking about with physicians leading this, uh, in your book, you explain that hospitals are going to be impacted. And so they might be motivated to cooperate with these physician groups that you're describing in reducing waste if those practices were paying them out of a global budget. But provider groups must be very large and experienced with managed care before they're ready to take on inpatient risk. Also, there are limits to what hospitals can actually do to cut waste when services are being ordered by physicians. And you dedicate an entire chapter in your book to how hospital consolidation has led to the big increase in the cost of healthcare. Some hospitals have moved in the direction of taking financial risks, such as bundled payments and ACO shared savings, as we've discussed, but that hasn't been enough to swing the needle on health costs. For example, the hospital readmissions program, which was implemented in 2012 to penalize hospitals for an excessive number of readmission for heart attacks, CHF and pneumonia hasn't work because the penalties are too small to offset the fee-for-service revenue associated with heads in beds. And I love in your book how you referenced Don Burbuck's test for successful health policy to make hospitals want to be empty. <laughs> Dr. Berwick says, we will know when things have gone in the correct direction, when hospitals are trying to help people stay well rather than keeping beds filled. But that's habit and it's hard to change. So that being said, what will need to happen politically for hospitals to change their entrenched fee-for-service mentality? When will hospitals see the light, so to speak, and adopt a philosophy that's more congenial to at-risk physician groups? Well, I, I think there are really a couple of parts of that. One is that I think that uh, in, in the kind of reform model that I'm talking about, hospitals would have an incentive to try to work with uh, physician groups in order to be selected as a favorite institution uh, for doctors to refer patients to. But I think that, that more fundamentally, you know, hospitals have to go back to regarding themselves as buildings, as uh, workplaces, as sites of care, not as managers of care. And so it in, in the kind of uh, system that, that I foresee, the, uh, the primary care-driven system would try to keep patients out of hospitals to the degree that they could. And when patients did have to be hospitalized, these groups would have their own hospitalists who, unlike the hospitals that now work in, in, in uh, facilities, would be trying to improve utilization of resources. And, and they would be uh, working closely with the specialists who, again, today are pretty much um, on their own and uh, not necessarily interested in listening to what the hospitalists are telling them. But if these specialists had been chosen by the primary care group in their area, and they knew that they were expected to uh, use resources wisely, and they were working with hospitalists that were employed by the primary care group, I think that they would be more inclined to regard what they were doing as a, as a team effort. It would really be the, the specialists subject to you know, the resource constraints of a particular hospital that would decide you know, how much, what kind of care the patient would receive. Ken, my absolute favorite chapter in your book is the one on population health management. As a former ACO executive, I really think that was 
it's where the rubber meets the road. And you illuminate some outstanding bright spots in our industry. So in this question, I wanted to ask you about maybe one, one favorite one to share with our listeners. But uh, let me just walk through a couple of the ones that really stood out to me. You, you referenced the Rio Grande Valley Health Alliance, a small physician-led two-sided risk ACO in McAllen, Texas. They've done really well in the MSSP by leveraging their uh, PHM infrastructure and health IT. You make reference to group model HMOs such as Kaiser Permanente and large integrated delivery systems like Intermountain Healthcare and Geisinger Clinic. You mention organizations like Previa Health, a 300-doctor multi-specialty group in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and they use SNFIS to round on patients daily and post-acute care facilities. Heritage Physician Network is another one that uh, you referenced. They're a physician-led managed care organization in California. They're absolutely exceptional at identifying high-risk patients through their globally capitated model. In my neck of the woods, Austin Regional Clinic, which we showcased uh, on an earlier episode of this podcast, you, you talk about how they're very sophisticated in the way they use claims data and optimize their EHR. And you also uh, mentioned smaller ACOs and groups such as uh, Alidade and, and OptumCare and also some of the higher touch primary care groups like Oak Street, One Medical, Iora that are funded by private equity. So in your research on population health management, what were some of the common themes of success that you identified with these groups in terms of their infrastructure and their commitment to value? And also, do you have like a favorite bright spot example that you might want to share with our listeners today? Well, I think that uh, what all of them understood was that they had to take good care of their populations and try to do as much as possible to keep people healthy if they wanted to manage within a budget. Just such an obvious point, but people don't think in, in terms of populations that way, usually unless they're at financial risk. I think that the one common element in, in all of the successful ACOs and, and risk-taking groups that I saw is that they all were made uh, sophisticated use of information technology. And you know this is absolutely essential. If you don't have the right information to know what's going on with your population, who is at risk of getting sick or sicker, that risk stratification, and knowing you know, how to use the various tools that are available to guide care managers, uh, to guide patient outreach, you need the most recent and most powerful information technology in order to uh, really make population health management practical. I think that there, there were certainly good experiments with it, you know, before there was much information technology. You know, you think back to group health cooperative and the chronic care model. I think that they were thinking along the right lines, but I think that you, you can do so much of a better job when you have uh, you know good infotech, but there are some you know real obstacles in, in that area. You, know, you spoke about the interoperability between different systems has improved, and I, I would agree with that. But most of that interoperability is still at the document level, not at the level of uh, discrete data. So at this point, the organizations that are going to do best with financial risk are those that are using the same. EHR, or maybe uh, they have different regions uh, that each use, you know, the same EHR or whatever, but they really need to be able to uh, communicate with each other. The doctors, you know, within the ACO or the risk-taking group have to, you know, easily be able to communicate with one another and with other uh, members of the care team, especially care managers. And uh, EHRs also don't do a very good job right now in, in the care management area. So that's one obstacle. Another one is that it's still difficult to get claims data out of a lot of payers. Now, if, if you're in a, an ACO that belongs to the MSSP, you can get Medicare data, you know, which is certainly helpful, but it's still only one part of your population. So if you get to the point where you're uh, contracting with a number of different commercial plans, you may find it difficult to get the data you need. And as Dr. Uh, Dagestani of the... Uh, Western Regional Clinic pointed out, without that claims data, you're, you're flying blind. You don't know what care people received you know, outside of your clinic or your ACO. And not only does that open you up to out-of-network charges, but it also means that you can't really understand the full picture of the patient's health and, and the services they've received. And so you're likely to perform redundant tests and, and uh, even procedures. I think that, that that's a really important part of it. 
And by the way, I just like to add one other footnote to that, which is that I think telemedicine you know, has proved during this pandemic you know, to be far more capable than many doctors believe that it would be. I mean, I think there's certainly limits to telemedicine, but I, I also think that we're discovering that it can be used not only for diagnosing and, and, and treating minor acute problems, but also for uh, handling uh, patients who have chronic conditions. You know, that, that is really key when you think about how much of their care needs to be provided between visits. Right now, you know, a great deal of that is being done by care managers just getting on the phone. But I think that with uh, virtual visits, you know, now being available to uh, pretty much, you know, every practice, I think a lot more can be done in that area to keep tabs on patients between their, their three-month or their six-month uh, checkups. And in addition, we, we now have uh, new remote monitoring tools, which while they, they have a way to go in terms of accuracy, can, can certainly help doctors see the trend of a patient in terms of their, their blood pressure or their A1C. So I, I don't want to I don't want to emphasize health IT too much in this because there's still many other things that need to be done to provide good population health management and um, you know above all you need to be able to coordinate care across care settings primary care doctors you know should be doing more for patients you know, with chronic diseases before they refer them out but when they do need to refer them out uh, I think we need uh, you know much better communication between them and specialists. And again, this goes back to the health IT in terms of having um, closed loop referrals so that when a patient is referred, the primary care doctor knows you know, when they actually saw the specialist and that the specialist report comes back to them seamlessly into their, their EHR. As you recall, I wrote a whole other chapter about social determinants of health. And uh, I view that actually as an integral part of population health management. And I think a lot more people are seeing it that way these days. Because frankly, if somebody doesn't have enough to eat or doesn't have a roof over their head, they're not going to do that well with their, uh, their diabetes. I think that the, uh, the primary care groups uh, that I've talked about really need to establish communications with um, community agencies of various kinds uh, that can help people with unmet uh, social needs get those needs met. You know, they need to uh, be cognizant of the problems that uh, some patients have in affording their prescriptions or even getting to a pharmacy. You know, all these things, uh, you know, which, by the way, the Rio Grande ACO paid a lot of attention to. All those things will help improve population health and reduce costs so that these organizations uh, can manage within a budget. I also do think that the patient-centered medical uh, home movement, you know, has brought an awful lot to the table. In, in terms of value-based care, and that primary care groups should, you know, use those competencies to try to get all of their physicians uh, on board with the idea of, uh, you know, patient-centered care with patients having a medical home that they can they can go back to. This is still a huge problem in this country. Uh, so many patients don't have a regular source of primary care. If they're really sick, they'll tend to go to an emergency room or to a specialist. We have to turn that around. And then, of course, if they're young and they, they may just see there's no need to have a primary care doctor, they'll just go to a retail clinic or urgent care center or you know, use one of the American Wells or Teladocs of the world to um, speak to a doctor they've never seen before who is not their, their personal doctor. Uh, even if they do have a primary care doctor, the information you know, may not flow back to that physician about the visit and, and what came out of it. So I, I do think that uh, you know, the patient-physician relationship you know, has to be restored for a lot of people in order to make this whole system work. There's no reason why, uh, you know, technology can't further that relationship. But in addition, I do think that the way I've set up my reform model is that patients in a particular region have to choose a doctor in one of the primary care groups in that region. That means that they will have a medical home. They will have a personal physician. And when I say they have to do it, they actually don't, because if they don't uh, choose a doctor, that just means they'll, they'll pay health taxes at the highest rate for their income level. On the other hand, if they uh, choose a doctor in a lower cost group, they'll pay a lower health tax. So, you know, once again, I'm, I'm offering carrots and sticks to encourage 
patients to have a medical home, just as uh, my, my plan uh, encourages primary care doctors to join a statutory group in order to make more than, than Medicare rates. So, Ken, I, I wanted to ask you about social determinants of health. You know, after reading the population health management chapter, you made a, a very clear distinction that there's only so far you can go to curb spending. And then, you know, just you have to recognize that healthcare, you know, itself only accounts for, you know, anywhere between 10 to 25 percent of the variance in individual health over time and a greater, a far greater influence on health is really with the economic, social, and environmental factors, social determinants of health. And you cite David Nash and saying that economically focusing on highest risk patients is going to, you know, give you the highest return in the short run. But the underlying reason that they're at such high risk is driven by these social determinants. And he, and David Nash talks about the homeless population. And in your book, you do a great job of highlighting different SDOH successes in the industry. You mentioned Kaiser Permanente and CBS Aetna. And, you know, I think individually each uh, organization invested more than a hundred million each to address homelessness and United Healthcare is distributing millions of meals to members and Geisinger Health Plan in Pennsylvania is providing fresh food to diabetic patients. And you also make reference to um, what's being done at the government level, at the national level, you know, CMMI's accountable health community models at the state level, different Medicaid programs and what's happening in New York, Oregon, Vermont, North Carolina, they're overhauling their programs. And um, you also talk about behavioral health integration and primary care as a part of this and how there's like a, a huge return on investment. And like I think it's around six or seven dollars for every dollar spent. Um, so as a healthcare reform advocate and health policy expert, where do you think the provider responsibility ends and the society's responsibility begins? Should responsibility for social determinants of health be turned over to the healthcare system or should we do more to fund societal programs that exist outside of the traditional healthcare ecosystem? That's a very complicated question. I would say that, you know, healthcare is really not set up uh, to address all these um, social determinants of health. It can address a portion of them in collaboration uh, with community agencies, uh, housing agencies, uh, Medicaid programs, community pantries, and, and so forth. And, you know, certainly I think that um, the primary care doctors can take patients' economic and social circumstances into more account when they consider, you know, what treatments to prescribe. And uh, also before they assume that patients can necessarily carry out their care plan, they need to ask some questions. So I think in those areas, I think that healthcare providers can make a contribution. And, and in addition, I, I might add that nonprofit hospitals, you know, are, are supposed to donate a certain portion of their revenues for community benefit. And, uh, you know, as I detail in the book, the vast majority of what they consider to be uh, community benefit is the free care they uh, provide or the, you know, uh, bad debt they incur. But I think that, that more of that should be provided in terms of addressing social determinants of health. Ultimately, though, I think that the government, whether at the federal or the state level, you know, has to take the primary responsibility for trying to uplift the living conditions and the standard of living of, of the population. And, and there, you know, we begin to get into politics because we talk, start talking about a $15 minimum wage or, you know, we, we talk about you know, re reducing the inequality in the society and having wealthy people pay more in taxes, you know, so that we can do more in terms of education that will help people rise and, and get better jobs and, and make more money. So, you know, all these things had to be thrown in the pot. I don't think that, you know, healthcare can be held accountable for addressing social determinants of health solely, but there's certainly a lot that can be done and, and what can be done will enable ACOs and, and other risk-taking entities to do better financially. Ken, I'd like to ask you about the title of your book, Physician-Led Healthcare Reform, and have you talk a little bit more about your vision to make Medicare for all work for all stakeholders and this idea that it must give healthcare providers the strong incentive to cut the amount of waste in the system, but it, it isn't as simple as just having doctors practice more efficiently in return for a share of savings, but that the entire system needs to be restructured from top to bottom 
to provide these optimal conditions for physicians to deliver high quality care in the most efficient manner. And so we've talked about how primary care doctors must be placed in charge of the system. They must form these large groups to take financial risk and be paid for value rather than volume by reducing waste and improving outcomes. And, and high-performing physicians, both primary care doctors and specialists, could, could take better care of the patients while maintaining or even raising their own incomes. And so as part of this requisite shift to physician-led healthcare reform, I'm left to wonder how the government would be able to politically overcome the significant pushback from hospitals. And a physician-led reform model, as you describe it, will cause hospitals to lose their market power and may ultimately require them to divest of their physician practices near the beginning of this transition to Medicare for All. In your book, you affirm that hospitals will never fully embrace value-based care as long as it threatens their primary business model, which is, as we've said, to fill beds and generate outpatient revenues. You believe the market power of hospitals really needs to be eliminated. So how can we overcome these industry and political headwinds to create a more just and viable and sustainable healthcare system? Well, it's not going to be easy. <laughs> That's for sure. But as I point out in my book, certainly it's, it's not unusual in other countries for hospitals to be paid negotiated rates. And uh, it, it's proved to be workable in Maryland. Uh, in Maryland, they did uh, significantly reduce how much... Uh, hospital costs were rising compared to the, you know, the national average. And, it, and yet at the same time, hospitals were able to function. They were able to, the hospitals weren't going out of business and they were able to, to provide good care. So, you know, first of all, in terms of the feasibility of that, I, I think that's been proven. Now, hospitals certainly are, are not going to like this, but I think in the long run, especially uh, under Medicare for All, where Medicaid will, will rise to Medicare uh, payment levels and where they're not going to be paid at Medicare rates, but somewhere above that, but considerably lower than what they're being paid now by private insurers and employers, I think that they can find a, uh, um, they will adapt to a, mo a modicum of what they're, they're making now and still be able to, uh, to do okay uh, economically. As one of my sources pointed out, suburban hospitals would get hit much harder uh, than hospitals in inner cities, which are already getting paid fairly low amounts by Medicaid and, and, uh, and Medicare, and they have a lot of uh, self-paid patients. The other part of this is the uh, divesting their physician practices. Well, right now, on average, you know, hospitals are losing money on their, uh, their employed physicians perhaps as much as uh, you know, $178,000 a year, I believe, was the MGMA estimate per, per doctor. Of course, they, they make that up by you know, having the doctors refer all their patients to them. But it isn't so evident that they would get any fewer referrals in, in many cases if they let the doctors take back their independence. Doctors would still have to refer to some hospital and would probably be, in many cases, the one that's closest to them. It would be different perhaps in South Florida, where there are hospitals on every corner. But in a lot of parts of the country, there aren't that many hospitals in any given area. The, the other part of this is that what hospitals are, you know, are really afraid of if they don't employ doctors is that their competitors will hire those doctors and, and the, their referrals will be lost. But if nobody can employ doctors, that's really not a problem. So I, I think that although hospitals would undoubtedly uh, mount a class action suit and there would be a lot of litigation over this, I think in the end, they would be made whole and they would finally admit that uh, they don't really have to employ doctors in order to thrive economically. So Ken, I had one last question I wanted to ask, and it comes down to Medicare Advantage as a possible policy uh, solution. You know, as it stands today, MA is a widely popular program for patients and insurers are making really good margins with those products. 35% of Medicare beneficiaries, around 22 million people are enrolled in Medicare Advantage and the CBO projects it's going to be you know upwards of 50% by 2025 and COVID's happening and that's a flashpoint for change as we all know. But I'm thinking about employer-sponsored health insurance and you mentioned in your book how you know we could see just huge premium increases uh, going into 2021 
by 40% possibly. And that's just unfathomable. And a lot of that is linked to obviously costs associated with testing for COVID-19. And, you know, there's obviously, you know, millions dropping out of the workforce and cost shifting associated with that. So, you know, your book, you make a, a great case for there being a physician-led reform around Medicare for all. But as an alternate reform scenario, what do you think of Medicare Advantage for all? Is that politically feasible more so than a single payer option and maybe more economically sound since it keeps large insurers intact? You didn't really go into this in your book, but something I really wanted to ask you about. Yeah, and I've heard other people talk about that idea too. I think Medicare Advantage plans have been a, a good thing for, for a lot of Medicare beneficiaries because they're actually more economical than, than having to pay your premiums plus get Medigap insurance and, and a drug plan. For a lot of people, it makes sense. But I think that the whole idea of private insurance is questionable in this country because there has been such a long history of insurers extracting maximum amount of money from people and, and then trying to cover as little care as possible. And not, not only that, but these companies uh, are, are managing care in a lot of ways, even though no insurance company ever delivered care to a single patient. I think that if you want to have a physician-driven system, it has to be coupled with Medicare for all. I think that the incentives of Medicare Advantage plans and of physicians really are not aligned. They've certainly provided some doctors you know, with, with a good boost in their, in their incomes with basically a type of uh, shared savings. But I think that if, if you extrapolated that to the entire healthcare system, I think we would still be up against the same problem of a middleman between the, the physician and, and the patient that doesn't have to be there. And that is, you know, driving up costs just simply through administrative expenses. I think that the, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders estimate that a single payer system could save as much as 10% in administrative cost savings alone is probably on the mark. Why shouldn't we get, we get those savings? There's really no, no reason for private insurance. Ken, thank you so much for your time today. We have really enjoyed having you on the Race to Value and hearing your perspective. Where can our listeners obtain a copy of Physician-Led Healthcare Reform, a new approach for Medicare for All? Well, they, they can either go to um, the website of the uh, American Association uh, for Physician Leadership, or they can go to my book website, which is uh, physicianledreform.com. They can see a link both to the AAPL book site and also to the Amazon uh, site for my book. Well, thank you, Ken. We enjoyed our time together today. Well, thank you. It was really wonderful fielding your questions and thinking about all these things.